Hey you, Mr. and Mrs. Brewer. Have you ever wondered why it is that you get strange stares as you walk down the street? Have you ever wondered why the cops keep following you? Well, maybe it's because you're not wearing classy brewing gear. And hey, we're here to help you with that. Starting today, you can go to experimentalbrew.com and click on the store link and buy a spiffy black t-shirt that will really class up the joint and prevent you from getting all those shirtless tickets. So please come and support our podcast, buy some books, buy some gear, but you can only find it exclusively at experimentalbrew.com. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, Get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey there, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, America's number one selling homebrew book written by Denny and Drew. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, on today's episode, we're still at NHC, HomebrewCon, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but we also have some experimental results that we're going to share with you today. So once again, we're a little bit off our usual scripted format. We're going to have a couple of an uh, announcements to start the day. 
then we're going to meet up with uh, Marshall uh, of Brewlosophy. We're going to talk some Saison yeast experiments. I uh, hear from one of uh, Denny's chemistry pals who actually did the same experiment as us. And then uh, we're going to go into a little bit of talking that we did on the floor of HomebrewCon Pro Night with the Maryland Free State Homebrew Club Associations. Uh, and we interviewed a bunch of people, including some people that you'll know. Yep, that's right, man. There's some real interesting stuff in there, some really creative homebrew clubs. Before we get into all that good stuff, though, we want to remind you that you can support us on Patreon. Uh, you can go to our website or go to patreon.com. If you go to our website, you just click on the Patreon link and you can donate uh, whatever amount of money works for you. We use that money to fund the podcast and our experiments, but mainly we use it to donate to a charity that uh, you help us decide. We have been uh, raising money for Freedom Service Dogs, a great, great organization out of Colorado that trains rescue dogs to be service dogs for disabled vets and other people. And we have just concluded that, and we're ready to make a donation. And the grand total is... Drew! Uh, shockingly, very appropriate, $420, which is really that freaking is cool. great. Yeah, we want to really thank all you guys out there for uh, for helping us make this great contribution to Freedom Service Dogs. Uh, it was a wonderful thing to do. And we want to remind everybody that it's time to pick a new charity. So if you've got any ideas, shoot us an email here at uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com and tell us uh, what your ideas are for a charity that we can raise some money for. There you go. And yeah, and uh, truly, guys, it's really kind of, I don't know, just kick ass that we've, uh, we're putting together a little bit of a charity fund. I love it. Yeah, really, really. All right, and now, of course, we have to go to one of uh, my favorite segments of the show. Uh, I hope you heard the air quotes around that word, favorite. Uh, it is time for a Correctional Department of Corrections Corrections announcement. Uh, once again, uh, being caused by me, because, well, uh, I done goof. Uh, a couple episodes back, when I, I talked about going up to San Francisco and hanging out at a homebrew club, and talked about one of our listeners approaching me and giving me uh, uh, some gear, and well, me being me, of course, I'm extraordinarily grateful for the uh, for the swag because I actually use it every day at the gym. But <laughs> me being me, I messed up the poor guy's name. Uh, so Aww. yeah, uh, uh, word of warning, folks. I I'm terrible with names. Uh, if I'm behaving myself, I'll make sure to remember to write things down. But in the meanwhile, uh, Carlo, I'm sorry, I messed up your name. <laughs> but thank you again. So that has been your Correctional Department of Corrections announcement. Expect more in the future. <laughs> All right. Now that Drew has uh, made up with Carlo, uh, I think uh, it's time for us to take a quick break and stroll over to the lab to talk about the Saison stall experiment. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. It's 
It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, everybody, we are here in the lab today to report on some experimental results. And besides Drew and me, we have our good buddy and fellow experimental Marshall Shot with us from Brewlosophy. How you doing, Marshall? Hey guys, thanks for having me back on. I'm doing good. Thanks for being here, buddy. I think it's very cool that uh, we can coordinate our experiments like this and get a whole wide range of results. <laughs> and by wide range, I mean wide range. <laughs> What's amazing is that we that we I don't think we actually planned this out. We just happened to do be doing something yeah. similar at the same time. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know, man. Well, serendipity works. There it is. Well, and 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 I and I think yeah. You know, I mean, going forward, I hope that you know periodically we can come back and revisit this sort of thing because I like the reaching out via different audiences and different me methodologies and seeing is there something there. Definitely. Yeah, and as we all know, uh, the bigger the sample you get, the, the more interesting the results become. For sure. So, Drew, do you want to uh, run down what the experiment was exactly? All right. Yeah. So this is the experiment that is all about my particular technique of uh, brewing saisons and something that I learned a number of years ago where the DuPont strains or what everybody thinks are the DuPont strains, which are uh, Y-East 3724 Belgian saison and White Labs 565 uh, Belgian saison. They're notorious. They're finicky. They're a pain in the rear to use, uh, at least according to internet lore and homebrewers in general. Because they'll get going, you make a big starter, uh, they run like gangbusters for the first three days, and then they sort of poop out and hang out for two weeks before finally picking back up and finishing out the beer. And I had never really experienced that problem, at least not for years and years. And I was finally talking with some folks from uh, a couple of the yeast companies, and they, they hinted in that the yeast strains are back pressure sensitive, according to what they're able to figure out. And what that means is that any additional pressure in the fermenter causes them to stall out. Uh, <clears throat> and so I realized that, oh, well, then the reason I've never seen this is because I open ferment most of my beers, including my saisons. So I literally put the wort into my 10-gallon corny kegs, crack the pressure relief valve, and slap a piece of foil over the top of it, and then let them run. I have a very particular protocol that I do, which is I chill the wort down into the mid-60s, uh, preferably around 63, and then pitch a healthy quantity of yeast, crack open the pressure relief valve, let it sit for three days uh, at a relatively cool temperature, so somewhere in the low 60s uh, to the mid-60s, and then let the heat rip and go, right? Because that's been everybody's solution in the past is, oh, you've got to get the DuPont strains really, really hot, you know, 90 degrees or 80 degrees or something like that in order to get them to ferment. And I use part of that, but when I've done forced heating uh, for the entire period of time, I've gotten some really nasty characters out of it. So I like that start of an initial cool fermentation followed by a hot rocket finish. And so what we did was we had the Igors uh, give this one a test. Uh, we used my recipe, uh, which is my Saison Experimental, which is a very clean, very classic, very simple Saison. Uh, and uh, we had them use uh, Y-East 3724 or White Labs 565. 
and we had them do exactly my protocol. And we also had them do one of the fermenters with an airlock and one without. And I know a lot of people are out there going, oh, you know, an airlock's not going to make that much difference. It's only like an inch of water. Well, let's find out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I guess uh, we're, we're going to start off here by playing an interview that I did uh, with a guy in my club by the name of Jeremiah Marsden. Uh, Jeremiah is a chemist by trade and uh, runs a chemical analysis company. He is an amazingly good brewer uh, with a wide array of very cool equipment. And uh, he he did this experiment and uh, reported on his results. So uh, let's just take a quick listen to that. So uh, we're talking to my friend Jeremiah Marsden, who's a member of my homebrew club, the Cascade Brewer Society, and he did the Saison experiment himself. Uh, how's it going today, Jeremiah? Doing well, Benny. How are you? Uh, I'm great, man. So uh, just a little bit about your background here, just so people know. You are a chemist, is that correct? That's right. Uh, and you run your own chemistry company of some sort, uh, right? Doing analysis? Yeah, Cascade Custom Chemistry. So we're a synthetic lab. We've got 15 chemists, mostly working for pharmaceutical companies. Wow, cool, man. So uh, tell me, uh, how did you go about doing this Saison experiment? What what was the recipe that you used, and what was uh, your procedure? Yeah, I used um, Drew's recipe that he published and kind of went about a similar protocol that he had. So you've got about 85% Pilsner, um, 5% flaked wheat, and then about 10% sugar. Uh, a little magnum in there for hops at 60 minutes, 20 IBU. And then uh, used the Y yeast 3724, the Belgian Saison yeast. Right, right. And did you just brew one batch of wort and split it, I assume? Yep. One five-gallon batch uh, using the Grain Father brew system. That was that was going to be my next question, if you used your Grain Father on it. You do it, yep. <laughs> I kind of figured you would. So uh, tell me about the, uh, the fermentation. Sure, yeah. So... Um, I split that into two, two and a half gallon carboys. One of them uh, put in an S-lock bubbler. The other one was left open with a loose foil cap. Um, pitched them both about uh, 64 degrees, I think. And um, just let it kind of rock at room temperature. It was in the 60s. I think it went up probably low 70s in the first three days. Yeah. And let's see. I checked the gravities uh, day three after it started. It seemed like it started to slow down at day three. And then they were both at 1036 from 1056 starting. Okay. And uh, both proceeding pretty similarly at that point. Um, day 10, checked them again. And the one with the bubbler was at 10.30. The one uh, open with the foil was at 10.24. So. Whoa. So that was at day 10? Day 10, yeah. So you were seeing a really big difference just a week and a half in. Yeah, which surprised me. I came into this thinking it was uh, bogus. <laughs> Hear that, Drew? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
I mean, I, I know that Drew has done this often enough that he was pretty certain of the results. So uh, I, I'm glad that we don't have to tell him that he's full of it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me that there's not that much pressure in a bubbler, but if the CO2 is scrubbing out more easily if it's open, my guess. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, an interesting thing. From your point of view as a chemist, can you think of anything that is causing this? I think it, maybe the yeast is just sensitive to CO2, and when it's open, you're getting kind of more movement in there, the CO2 coming out more easily. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if that's right or not. So what was the final gravity on both of them? Okay, so I kept checking these after a while, and I started swirling after 10 days to get the yeast kind of, both get the yeast in suspension and to help the CO2 come out. Uh-huh. And, okay, day 22, we're still plugging along. The With the bubbler, now we're down to 1028, dropped a couple points. But with the open one, we're down to 1006. Wow, 22 yeah. points difference? Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, three weeks. Whoa. And did you just make one starter and divide it between the two batches, or did you make two starters, or how did you do that? Um, I did not make a starter. I okay. just I poured the uh, yeast into a grad cylinder mm-hmm. and poured half into each fermenter. Okay. Okay. And uh, so then we so then you just split one one smack pack between the the two fermenters, right? Right. So then we didn't have to uh, to worry about different day codes and stuff. And uh, no, knowing what you do and how you do things, I'm going to trust that uh, that you got the yeast divided pretty evenly. Yeah, yeah. We use the graduated cylinders. So. <laughs> You you have equipment far beyond what the average home brewer uses. Yeah. <laughs> so, and okay, so the and what about the the taste of the final batches? So the the one that dried out, the open one, I kegged that up. It tastes great, and I worried maybe it was infection that caused it to drop. Uh, it's clearly not infected. It, it tastes great. It's similar to Dupont Saison. Right. Um, the one with the bubbler, that now is at six or seven weeks. I'm still working on it. Uh, <laughs> I left the bubbler on. I tried heating it uh, in the 90s for about a week. Right. That didn't drop at all during that period. Um, and then uh, left it about two or three weeks after that, just at room temperature, and it's down to about 1020 now. So it is still going. Wow, and that's interesting. Just the taste from the samplers—it uh, tastes great. A little, little sweet, but I, I'm just going to let it, let it sit yeah. and go. So, uh, based on this, uh, when you make saisons in the future, will you be using the open fermentation method? I sure will with this. Season. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I I do believe that it's somewhat strain dependent too. I I think that if you're going to like say use thirty seven eleven or something like that, you won't find uh, as yeah. much of of a difference. So, okay, Jeremiah, I'm going to let you get back to your exciting work day. But uh, thanks a lot for taking some time out to talk to us about the saison experiment. No problem. Thanks, Denny. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye.
So uh, we heard Jeremiah's results on the experiment, and I got to tell you, in some ways I'm surprised, and in some ways I'm not surprised. Uh, his, uh, his fermentation performance pretty much matched what Drew had found in terms of, uh, of airlock versus no airlock and attenuation versus less attenuation. But on the other hand, tasting, the beers seem to be remarkably similar. Uh, what do you think? I, well, I think that's pretty fascinating. One, it completely confirms Drew's theory, which um, which we'll get to my results later. But um, the the fact, if if I if I heard correctly, he still has uh, the airlock batch sitting in the fermenter, and it's still slowly attenuating, yeah. right? So he's he's comparing fermenting beer to uh, basically a finished beer that, and they taste about the same. Um, that to me says a lot about how you know fermentation character isn't always the most defining aspect of a beer which is pretty pretty <laughs> just really interesting to me well well and and you've seen i mean we've done experiments before and we've seen other ex- people's experiments where they talk about oh you know this beer had a radically different final gravity from the other sample and people still have a hard time picking it out i and for me i've always said I don't think this is necessarily uh, the technique is necessarily a flavor influencer as much as it is an ability to get the damn thing to finish. Yeah, I can hmm. I can see that for sure. Um, you know, and it is it is just fascinating to me, and definitely contrary to the conventional homebrew wisdom uh, that beers with such radically different final gravities or specific gravities, in the case of the one that isn't finished fermenting yet. Uh, can be so similar in flavor. So, I also think it. Uh, I think it also helps that the particular yeast strains that we're talking about are very big character producers. They have very distinctive characters, and those characters are all generated early in fermentation. So, what you've got is all those clove and spice and and other flavors that are in there from the very beginning, and now you're just getting to the point where you're shaving off kind of the final bits of sweetness. Because yeah, remember, right. he he did say that. Oh yeah, the second one, the second one tastes very similar, but it's yeah, still sweet right, a, a little bit. So, so Jeremiah had really dramatically different results, at least in the yeast performance in these two beers. But you didn't, huh, Marshall? No, and a little bit of self disclosure here. I'm not. I don't brew a lot of saison. You know, um, I I tend to stick with a lot of um, you know lager styles and and, and American ale. Um, so, so when I make a Saison, I really want it to be good enough for me to want to drink since it's kind of unique that I have one on tap. Um, and so what I did is I, I did my best to follow, uh, the, the article over on the Malthus Falcons website that Drew put out a while ago, um, in terms of getting these results. And, and, uh, I'd never used the DuPont strain before, uh, either 565 or 3724, uh, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I'll admit, I kind of stayed away from it out of fear of this apparent issue. Um, so in designing the beer, I, um, I, I put together a, what I call my say you, say me, saison. Uh, it, it's, it's a recipe that I made last year using a different yeast, figured that it would work well for this. Um, I built up one of the things that I, it sounds like I did differently than Jeremiah is I actually did build up a starter, um, uh, 1250 milliliters using two smack packs of 3724. Uh, and then I split that evenly between each batch and my results, the, the objective results even were, were quite a bit different than what he got. I don't know yeah, if yeah, you want yeah, me to go, go into ahead, that man. now or 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the brew day was a typical brew day. I split the batch evenly, trying to get as much, trying to equalize the kettle trube in each in each carboy. Uh, one got covered with a sanitized piece of foil. The other one was immediately covered with an airlock. I uh, cooled the beers down to 64 degrees because I thought that was <laughs> right. Um, and uh, once they got to 64, the, the starter was split between both. And I let them sit at, it was controlled to 64 degrees for three days before I came back and I started taking regular hydrometer uh, readings. Um, something I don't usually do, but I thought for this variable, it seemed prudent. Um, and so the very first hydrometer reading, both both uh, beers look to be right at about uh, 1025, 1026 specific gravity. So they were looking the same at this point. Uh, again, I think that that kind of goes in line is congruent with what Jeremiah found at first. Um, and then it, th- this is when I, I bumped the regulator up to 90 degrees, but I didn't apply, I didn't apply any heat. So I just let it, the exothermic uh, heat kind of bring it up on its own uh, over time. And I came back, let's see, four days later, took another hydrometer reading. I also noted the, the temperature at this point to be 84 degrees. And at this point, there was a difference, but it was in the opposite direction <laughs> than what I expected. Dude, you screwed it up. <laughs> the foil cup. And this is when I started... Qu- I know, it was totally my <laughs> fault. Uh, this is when I really started questioning all of the, all of the information I've, you know, uh, I've absorbed from Master Drew. <laughs> and uh, what, <laughs> what I found was that... Uh, so a full weekend, basically, the foil-covered batch was at 1012 specific gravity, while the airlock batch was at 10.10. So it had actually dropped two points lower uh, than the non-back pressure uh, batch. I waited another four days and I came back and measured them again. Um, I, had, I, I started applying heat as well to bring it up to 90 degrees. So now we're at, what, 11 days? And the foil batch had dropped to uh, 10.10 and the airlock batch was down at 10.07. So pretty, I don't, you know, in terms of... of uh, gravity measurements that seems pretty pretty yeah different to me um let's see here three more days i took a lot of these hydrometer measurements um three days later so i th- believe that's mm-hmm. 14 days two weeks total the foil covered batch was at 1007 the airlock batch was at 1005 they were both sitting at 90 degrees at this point everything else looked exactly the same uh you know the the just the nature of fermentation the way the croissant looked all that stuff looked the same uh, I've, I finally, another three days. So we're at what, 17 days now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I took a hydrometer measurement that showed the foil covered batch to be at 1006, the airlock covered batch to be at 1004. And then I confirmed no change in that three days later, uh, two or three days later. And so that's, it was at that point that I started to cold crash the beers. So it, one of the, one of the things I thought was interesting is that this is, this Beer, regardless of whether it was covered with foil or an airlock, took a long time to ferment compared to what I'm normally seeing, you know, when I'm using other ale yeasts. Hmm. That is really, that so, is really so weird. Did, uh, you got any explanations for that, Drew? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marshall Dunn. F- yeah. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, I would say, uh, I would argue. <laughs> I do do yeah, that. Well, we all yeah. do. Uh, <laughs> anybody who says they don't right. is lying. Um, I would, I would suppose, I mean, one, I always say that doing, doing a lot of work to make sure that your yeast is healthy forgives a lot of sins in the brewing process. Um, 
So I think, yeah, the starter, the starter makes a difference. I also think the fact that you force for, uh, force heated up to 90 also probably made a mm-hmm. difference as well. I mean, given the, the relative differences in your final gravities, even, and even the observed gravities as you were going along, uh, the differences are relatively negligible. Um, so I'm just trying to think, cause like with Jeremiah's batch, we know that he, he didn't force heat. Like he didn't get up into the nineties. He, uh, if I recall correctly from the interview, he got up into yeah, the mid seventies. That's right. So it, that, and I, I actually considered that when I first started to, um, when, I, when basically what I did, it was at 64 for three days. And then I just turned off the regulator. Mm-hmm. Um, which the way I do that is I just bump up, bump up the temp and unplug the heater, right? So it was it wasn't until about a week in when I'm, I'm trying to go back and look at the photo here. Um, let's see, yeah, it wasn't until a full week in that I started ramping up the temp, and all I did is I I, I would do five degrees ambient temp heated per day, so it would get up there and just kind of sit, and the beers would slowly rise. So I was trying to be gentle about it. Um, and again, I don't, I don't make much saison. A part of me thought that was the way you were supposed to do it. So I was just following convention, at least in my mind, but it wasn't, it was, I didn't push it really hard. I mean, it, it, it got to 90 eventually, you know, at the two week mark, but it, you know, it, they were, we were already down at 10, 10 ish range before I, before I applied any heat so, at all. Yeah. I was going to say, Drew, why don't you talk a bit about uh, the results we got from the Igors? All right. Yeah. So now we had uh, three different sets of results coming from the Igors, uh, uh, specifically Matt Yoakum, uh, who's a new Igor, James K, and uh, Jason Mundy all reported back in. And they had a total of uh, 35 uh, tasters. And this is just on the tasting results first, because, and we'll talk about why I don't think that these are the interesting part of the experiment. But they had 35 total tasters. Of the 35 uh, total tasters, 15 were able to correctly identify which beer had been, uh, which was the different beer in the triangle testing, uh, which actually puts it below the point of significance because we would need 17 in order Mm -hmm. to get it uh, a significant finding. Now, so that means, okay, great. Our our tasters couldn't tell the difference between the two beers reliably. And I'm okay with that because, again, to go back to the point of what we were talking about, I consider this to be more of a uh, of a technique for production, and is there a difference with the the production? So, what we see coming out almost invariably, I think, with each of the uh, each of the experimenters, and I'm just going to pull uh, pull up the notes here real quick. We see that they all had the same sort of reaction where they actually were seeing differences between uh, the fermentation performance uh, right. too. Um, to the point where, uh, all of them, uh, are basically going, huh, I guess maybe this is how I should do it. Uh, Marshall, you're the real um, outlier here, buddy. But (laughs) yeah, um, I, I, I think, uh, I I think the best experiment, uh, the best results that we had were from people going, I'm really, really surprised that this made a difference. I'm fascinated. I, 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 right. Obviously, this is the first I've seen of your guys' data, the Igor's data at least, and uh, he, and, and hearing about that just absolutely, I, I thought everyone would experience what I did, but I, and I have no, I have no good excuse. I have no good. The beers both tasted exactly the same. The obvious answer uh, is you suck uh, as a brewer. Generally enjoyed by everyone who drank it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that I, we've all we've all well, known that. Yeah. The yeah. I'm, okay, I'm only at right. I'm only at batch 488. Um, I, I've still got like 22 yeah, I mean, more to, to go. Give, before uh, I'm give good, you an idea so, of looking, yeah. at, looking at some of these results more uh, more fully, like uh, Jason Mundy's results. Uh, he he probably had the most dramatic split, other than Jeremiah, where after 11 days his airlock batch was still sitting at uh, 1020, and his non airlock batch was sitting at 1004. Yeah, uh, and we see we see that with the the other ones where. Eventually, all the all the other experimenters got it got the airlock batch down, but uh, which I think really drives home the point that you know okay at the end the fermentation characters were going to taste relatively the same, but it took them more time. So, do we know? Do we know if yeah. any of the Igors uh, did the kind of temp thing that Marshall did, where they just totally jacked it up, uh, or did they do the slow rise like Jeremiah? Um, no, I'm trying to see. Uh, looking at the results, I. Uh, Matt Yoakum uh, specifically notes doing uh, a rise and holding holding the temperatures using a heat wrap, and he got them up to, uh, uh, well, okay, he, he's using communist uh, units, uh, 25.5C. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so that's close that's to what warm. Marshall um, was doing. Yeah, and, and that's fine. I mean, I think, uh, I think that's, that's absolutely dandy uh, for... Uh, our American listeners uh, in freedom units, twenty five point five C is uh, seventy seven point nine Fahrenheit. So not not as hot, uh, as but Marshall. yeah, no, not not as hot. But uh, again, I I tend to think heat gets overplayed. Uh, when I I did my big yeast strain experiment uh, five six years ago now, uh, I did a batch with five sixty five uh, unheated with a natural rise. I did a batch of 565 where I basically slapped a heat wrap around the damn thing and uh, pushed it to 85 degrees right from the bat. Don't do that. That's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> I actually, I think I read that somewhere that you did that. Night. Yeah. That, intentionally avoided it for that reason. That, that's in the, that's in the Saison guide, uh, yeah. a strain guide, if you, uh, that I have on the Maltos Falcons webpage that we'll link in the episode. But yeah, really don't do that one. Cause that's, that just makes a bad, right. bad beer. <laughs> well, so, so I should say, um, just going over my notes here, I, I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that I raised the ambient to 90 degrees. The right. warmest the beers ever got was about 87 degrees before I started cold crashing, which is, that's, that's the warmest I've ever brought a beer up to. Uh, but it was, I mean, at 87 degrees, by that time, the attenuation was, what, 85, 90% done. So. All right. But now, but now looking through what we have, since uh, no. I think we, we're all in agreement that the p-value for you know, whether or not the tastes are different is probably not the interesting piece out of this experiment. But to me, it's, we had definitely five different runs of the same experimental approach, right? Between the three Igors, Jeremiah and, and Marshall. And of those five, four of them saw actual differences between the fermentation characteristics. And Marshall screwed it up. No, no. Marshall's the outlier. Uh, (laughs) So to me, that says, Hey, that's, that's actually kind of meaningful. Yeah. Um, so, so Marshall, uh, based on the fact I think so that too. Yeah. so many other people have uh, experienced different results than you did, is this something you may revisit? Uh, poten- potentially, yeah. I, you know, the thing is, I, I said I don't make much Saison, but I, um, I almost open ferment solely, at least for the first, I don't know, week or so of fermentation, regardless of the beer I'm making, whether it's a 
you know, German Pilsner or American mm-hmm. Brown Ale, I just slap some uh, sanitized foil over the top and let it go. So in, t- in terms of practice, I, right. I'm actually not going to be changing anything because I kind of already do it. Um, re- revisiting the specifically how the, 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 the fermentation characteristics of, uh, the Cezanne DuPont strain or whatever that, that strain is. Um, I think, I think it deserves to be <laughs> yeah, looked at again for sure. It, I'm not, I, I can't say when I'm going to get back <laughs> wait, to wait, it. Wait, but, you're, you're, but, you're not running out of yeah, new experiments to try. <laughs> it, t- yeah, yeah. Good Lord. But, but the, you know, the thing is, um, when it comes to, I, I, I think it's interesting to think about what we all presumed would be the case. And, you know, when I got done collecting data on this, I'd chat with the participants a bit and, and almost ubiquitously, there was this idea that, oh, come on, you know, an airlock's not going to create anywhere near enough pressure to have an impact on the yeast. But the fact so many people, uh, seem to kind of share the experience of uh, a slower attenuation when yeah. there's an airlock on there seems to yeah. say something. Well, and, I mean, that, that's really and interesting And I appreciate what Jeremiah said in his interview where he mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of people object to the idea of, oh, you know, it's the airlock generating back pressure. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the world's most enamored of that particular explanation, but Jeremiah mentioned the, the other one that I think is possibly a culprit, which mm-hmm. is CO2 toxicity. Because if you watch how these how people talk about yeah. the stall, the stall always seems to be, okay, the beer stalls out and then it sits for a couple of weeks and then it comes back, which to my mind is enough time for you to lose CO2 out of solution. Yeah. And, and the yeast kind of comes back to life. So I don't know, maybe it's CO2 toxicity, maybe it's back pressure, maybe it's something else, but there definitely does seem to be a, an effect here. And most importantly to me about this whole thing is I hope that this, these sorts of results will encourage people to go and use these strains, these persnickety, finicky strains that everybody seems to avoid because oh, I don't want to have to wait 24 days in order to get my beer to be ready. And instead they use a perfectly fine mm-hmm. yeast strain, which is the Y-Yeast 3711, the French Saison, which is a powerhouse. It does great things. Uh, it makes for some really interesting uh, base beer characteristics. But to my mind... It just doesn't deliver the Saison punch that I want. So I I see a lot of people making some really sort of boring beers marketed as Saisons because they're using uh, 3711. And having said that, I use 3711 a lot <laughs> to do a lot of my hoppy Saisons and to do my weird things like the clam chowder. Right. So in other words, hey... Now you know how to use these strains. We think there is actually a thing. We hope that you give it another shot and give it a test. But don't avoid 3724 and 565 just because you think they're going to take forever. Just slap some foil over that bugger and see what happens. Yeah. I, I'm actually really curious to see what other, uh, you know, what other less finicky yeast strains, how they respond. I mean, are we going to see, um, assuming that the majority of, of people, including myself who have done this, um, assuming that the majority experience is what is, what is typically going to be experienced by other people. You know, if I'm, if I'm fermenting with uh, 090, uh, you know, an IPA and I throw a piece of foil over the top, is it going to work a little bit faster than if I had an airlock? I mean, I've never it's, done it's a, a comparison like that. I was going to say, I mean, that's a good thing to test. It's a good thing to test because I think, uh, you know, particularly with the, the number of strains that we have, even the American strains that are British or, in origin originally, 
I mean, we know that several of those British strains do much better with open fermentation than they do with closed fermentation. Right. I'm yeah. So, I'm anxious to try it with uh, with fourteen fifty. Mm, to tell you the mm. truth, uh, I can I can get pretty good performance out of fourteen fifty. Yes. Hold on. Yes, Denny. What's fourteen fifty oh, for the audience? Sorry, why East fourteen fifty? Denny's favorite. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. Uh, and I, I, it's not it's not like I get uh, like royalties from saying that. But uh, at any rate, <laughs> I wish <laughs> just from selling uh, it. Yeah. So, uh, but basically, you know, I get I, I get I'm pretty sure. good performance out of that. It will generally chew through uh, an average gravity beer in like three four days. Uh, but what I want, so I'm not really expecting a huge performance difference, but I want to see if maybe it generates a flavor difference, uh, by doing that, but who knows? So let's, let's wrap this up here, guys. Uh, here's, here's my takeaway and you tell me if you agree with it. My takeaway from this is that if you're using the DuPont strain for a Saison, uh, whether you're using the White Labs version or the Y-East version, you will probably get better performance and an easier fermentation by doing an open slash foil over the fermenter type of fermentation than by using an airlock. But it will not make a huge difference in the flavor of the beer. And the caveat on that first part is, unless you're Marshall. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, my, I would say that you, there, you know, the way I look at it is, it's, it's added insurance. I mean, there seems to be some evidence supporting this notion that, the, you know, the open fermentation with foil over the top of the, uh, of, of the carboy is, uh, it's not going to work against you, and at the very least, uh, it's going to work, right? You know, to help you out and and uh, not. Work to avoid. I, I would agree with that, and I would also uh, reiterate my uh, recommendation that I think some of the most interesting saisons I've ever done have actually been with a pitch blend of both the Yeast thirty seven twenty four and the White Labs five sixty five. Interesting. So, so, so the, the, you you perceive the, slight differences huh. in them, huh? Yeah, I do. And you know, also, you know, people ask, hey, you know, so Dupont has these wonderful square fermenters, yeah, you know, and you see attached to the square fermenters a very large bubbling airlock. Uh, why don't they experience this problem? And I usually argue that it's because if you look at the yeast that DuPont's using, they are using, uh, at least in theory, something that has at least two strains of yeast and one strain of bread. Hmm. Interesting. So they may have additional, uh, additional help in the fermenter that we're not getting by sort of our focus on uh, pure monocultures. Yeah, right. We're, we're using very you know, specific isolates of, of that strain and it's going to have it. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, it's like we've all pointed out before, uh, what applies to commercial breweries does not necessarily apply to home brewers. Blasphemy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But again, ladies and gentlemen, brewers of all ages and stripes and, and styles and archetypes, please remember this now means that you have the tools in your hands to avoid the monstrosity that is the Saison stall followed by a pitch of USO5 <laughs> or 1056 to finish the damn thing out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Okay, guys, great discussion, cool experiment. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. All right, now, and now we now we got to see what's the next thing that we're going to accidentally do <laughs> yeah, at the same time. Right. Let's talk about that yeah, later. Or, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or maybe, or maybe, maybe we should actually try and do one for uh, yeah all together. Yeah, that'd for be real. Actually, plan. Oh boy. Something, huh? All right, guys. Mm. Thanks a bunch. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and we will be right back. Adios. All right. Hey, that was a really great time that we had with the experiment. And I really love having Marshall on the podcast because I think he adds a certain uh, uh, je ne sais quoi uh, to the whole proceedings. Does that mean legitimacy? Now it's time for us to get into the heart of the craziness, the heart of everything mad. So now we are heading to the floor of Pro Brewers Night. Now, in the past of uh, NHC HomebrewCon, Pro Brewers Night was a... Uh, evening party where you had basically all the local commercial breweries or many of the local commercial breweries uh, come and pour their wares, you know, kind of like any other beer festival that you've ever seen. But this year at Baltimore, Club Night, which is the same sort of thing, but with the homebrew clubs, was apparently so popular and so in demand that the AHA actually asked a whole set of Maryland clubs to pour on Pro Night. So, we thought that was kind of spiffy and a hell of an opportunity to go talk to some clubs. So Denny and I suited up. We grabbed our handy dandy field recorder and a microphone or two and started to walk around the floor and went down the line and talked to a whole bunch of the Maryland clubs uh, to learn what they were doing, why they like to brew and why they thought it was important to be there at the conference. Yeah. And I'll just, uh, I'll just clarify one little thing because believe it or not, there was alcohol involved in this and we kind of forgot something. At one point you'll hear us uh, interview a guy <laughs> and refer to him as Mike. Uh, this, that's uh, Mike Tonsmeyer, the author of American Sour Beers and an all around great guy. So uh, when we're standing there uh, talking to Mike, that's who it is. And and I have to say, I'm really, really impressed with just how well the audio came out, given the fact that we were in the middle of a giant, honkingly loud, echoey convention floor with a bunch of really drunk people. Well, it's fortunate that we have a brilliant audio engineer on board. So, <laughs> Okay, here we go. Off to uh, Pro Night at, uh, at HomebrewCon 2016 in Baltimore to talk to some Maryland homebrew clubs. We're here at NHC. Introduce yourself, sir. I'm Mike O'Toole. I'm with the Annapolis Homebrew Club. And an Igor. Yep. All right. So here's a question that we're going to ask everybody. Uh, one, why do you like to come to NHC? So this is my first time. It's right in my backyard, and uh, I, you know, I've been, I've been doing homebrewing for about two and a half years, and you know, why not come to your backyard, right? Uh, you know, I, I would have loved to have gone to San Diego last year, but that was too big of a stretch, but. All right, and so what do you think of an HC so far? Oh, it's awesome. All right. Well, then next question. What makes your homebrew special? Oh, I made it from scratch. I mean, is there anything else to say about that, right? There we are. All right, and do you have one of your homebrews on tap? Yeah, it's the uh, Departed. It's, the, it's an Imperial Red Ale. So uh, 
basically a little bit about it. Uh, a lot of the I, a lot of the Imperial Reds I taste, they're red IPAs. Uh, what I tried to do is I started with a Irish red. I juiced it up, all American hops. Tried to tried to get a little bit of roasty character with that with a lot of sea hops and a little Simcoe at the end. And uh, you know, give it a shot. I hope you like it. Absolutely. All right, let's go have some beer. So here we go. We've got. Uh we got Mike's uh, departed Imperial Red in front of us, and wow, they've actually nailed the pour right on the beer line. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, we got good clarity. We got a, a sort of a lighter red color going on here. Nice uh, caramel aroma, and also a little bit of the kind of the citrus hops in here. You said uh, Citra and Simcoe, I think. Yeah. So basically, uh, I'll give you a rundown of the recipe. It's eighty-five uh, percent Maris Otter, uh, about two and a half, three percent of uh, uh, C120, another two and a half, three percent of uh, C40, and then uh, about two percent uh, roasted barley, and then uh, basically a 60-minute bittering addition with Chinook, uh, 15 Cascade, and then uh, flame-out addition of Cascade Simcoe, and then a uh, dry hopping of Cascade Simcoe. Well, great, and I mean, I know Denny just took a sip of it, and I, and I just. I'm almost done with my glass. It's the problem with the, the small glass pour. But, yeah, you've got a firm bitterness in here. A clean, you got the you definitely citrus characters, a little bit of pine. And, yeah, it gets in and gets out, and it doesn't have that kind of overly sickly red sweet thing going on. So one thing I failed to mention is I I do add about two pounds. It's a 10-gallon finishing batch. I add about two, ga- or two pounds of uh, corn sugar to try to dry it out at the end. So that that probably helps it out a lot. Absolutely, and I think I think you've done a marvelous job. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Mike. Yeah. And hey, uh, I hope to see your results coming up from the uh, New England IPA experiment. Yeah, man, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I like I said every every few weeks when your podcast comes out, I'm listening to it on my way to work. So you guys are doing a great job. Love the ukulele too, man. All right. Denny apparently does have ukulele fans, which is absolutely baffling, particularly to Denny. So here we go. We are at our next booth here. This is uh, Balta Brew, right? Balti Brew? Balta Brew. Balta Brew, right? All right. Introduce yourself, sir. My name is Jacob Wolf. All right, Jacob. And is this your first NHC? Yes, it is. And what do we think of NHC so far? We love it. It's awesome. We're having a fun time, and uh, we're glad that it's in Baltimore. So we can uh, definitely rep it from our uh, Balta Brew Club, which is meets in Baltimore, and most of the members are from Baltimore proper. Um, also, although some are from the Balta- Baltimore metro area, but we're really excited to be here, and we have a bunch of members out here uh, coming down and supporting NHC and having a fun time so far. Although it's the first day, so we'll have to see. <laughs> there we go. Who knows? It may it may wear thin by the end, but probably not. All right. So uh, one question uh, that we're asking everybody, what makes your beer special? My beer is special because I brew it and no one else brews it and no one else knows the recipes because sometimes they just come out of my head a little bit. And even though they're written down, there's always that little tweak or that little thing that makes it uh, uncreatable again. I guess, and uh, so, you know, that's something that's uh, unique to home brewing. I know it's not the best practice, but, you know, that's what makes it fun, and we love doing it, so 
Uh, we have a lot of fun and we love uh, collaborating, working together, uh, which I think is also a lot of fun that sometimes you brew with someone that's making lagers, uh, you brew a nice lager with them, sometimes you make, uh, work with someone that's making uh, a really nice ale, uh, something that's a little off note, off key. And uh, that's the cool thing about being part of a homebrewing association, a homebrewing club, is that you're working with all different types of people that are making all different types of beer, beer rather. And so you're trying different things, and you're really uh, opening your eyes to what's out there. Great, and I love it. Now, do you have, is one of your beers on tap? Uh, I got this Bohemian Pilsner. Let's uh, let's have some if I get in. And by the way, I think when you mentioned uh, not having all the proper notes, you made Denny twinge a little, since. Denny's note man. You know, um, for me, that would be like a, a cardinal sin, but for you, it's the way you do it. Man. So, so I, I'm with you. I agree. And, you know, some of my, the beers I find that are subpar, I follow the recipe to a T. And then I realized that the beers that were coming out a little bit better were the ones that I wasn't following to a T. So, I'm with you. I'm, I'm very scientific, like it seems that you are. But sometimes when you uh, when you mix it up a little bit and you have that little creative, uh, you remember that guy Emerald on the Food Network? Bam, yeah. So it's like if you got a little bit of that bam, you know, you you mix it up a little bit. Uh, but I, you know, obviously, I'm I'm with you. I started out that way that like I want everything written down, my notes. And what I'll try to do is I keep like a log where I'll try to keep notes about even if the recipe says one thing, I'll try to write what I did differently in the log so that when I go back, I compare the recipe to the log and then I can try to recreate it but sometimes it doesn't turn out as well as the first go around. Uh, you know man it's like you said it's your beer and whatever works for you is the right thing to do. That's that's how that's what home brewing's all about, you know, so. Well, I was going to say uh, you know once you get down through the uh, fluffy head which has a uh, quite an impressive uh, uh, hang time. The, uh, what we're getting is uh, a little, a little bit of caramel, you know, kind of a little bit of that buttery character that you'd expect from a, a Bohemian, but also a real strong uh, bready flavor, like a rich bread. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, it's uh, got, I think, Kara 60 in there uh, with the pills and everything, so uh, hopefully it, hopefully it's passable. I think it's quaffable, maybe not the best beer I've ever brewed, not the worst, certainly, but, you know, it's, uh, it's something to enjoy with my friends and hang out and serve and talk to guys like you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, we are standing in front of uh, Go Brew, the Greater Olney Brew Club of Olney, Maryland. All right, and we were talking with, and now your name your name badge is covered up. Oh, there we Robert. All right, Robert. Robert, introduce yourself to our audience. I'm Robert Black from uh, Brew Humber Club in Silver Spring, Maryland. And how long have you been brewing? Uh, since college, so about 20 years now, off and on. Hey, so that means you and I are about the same age. Awesome. We're getting old together. All right. And uh, is this your first NHC? Uh, this is my third. So I went to Philly and then Michigan and then uh, now Baltimore. All right. And what do you like about NHC? Uh, it's really cool to meet all the people. I like to see all the new stuff from the vendors. Um, and then occasionally learn things at the, the, the various talks that they have. Did you learn anything fun today? Uh, I went to the Sour uh, 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 talk, and that was very interesting, and Mary Izette was very good and learned a lot, very useful. All right, and then what makes your beer special? What makes my beer special? So I think all my beers 
turn out very similar and that they're all very dry and drinkable. And so that's what I'm shooting for no matter what uh, what style that I'm going for. So, All right, and do you have one of your beers on tap today? I actually have two Saisons and uh, an Abbey Ale. And the two Saisons are actually, there was an article written for Homebrew Academy that's, uh, that's what the, why I brewed these two. And then the Abbey Ale is for, it was for NHC. And that one is, so these five beers are all a single batch and then they're different, uh, different varieties basic, based off of that same batch. All right, well, we know me and Denny knows exactly where I'm going. Uh, could I get a, a little rinse and then I'm gonna have to go for the saisons. And audience, if you're surprised, you obviously haven't listened to me talk very much. A lot, of, a lot of what the article is about is how this batch actually went south and how we recovered from that or how I recovered from that. So, uh, so there's some, some information in there for maybe uh, uh, less experienced home brewers on what to do uh, when your yeast is not viable or you're having different problems with, their ba with your batch. All right, and, and when you say the batch went south, what do you mean? Is it bad yeast or...? So... Uh, I had several things go go south in the batch. Uh, one of them was that uh, I hadn't had a bad batch in several years, and so I kind of maybe pushed things a little too far. So this batch had homegrown hops in it. Uh, the my uh, gravity was too high. Uh, I didn't have viable yeast for the WLP three because it was expired. Uh, so I just had a variety of things kind of go wrong, and it. All right, and the and the first one is. Uh, why yeast uh, French Saison? And it's uh, it's very clean. I mean, you got an interesting hop character to it. That's it's not your classical noble hop, but you've got your kind of grainy, bready, pale, like a lot of pilsner type flavor going on. And still, yeah, uh, I mean, very clean, very potent, definitely saisony, but without like any uh, sort of the farmhouse funk. All right, so now let's try uh, number two, where you, which you said was the WLP three Saison three which is one of my favorites, and it's only, and it's only seasonally available. That's why it was expired, because I buy it when it's available, and I just kind of threw caution to the wind. I'm, my brew schedule is dictated by my wife's work schedule, so I had that night to brew, and so I just went with it. Well, and there's, a, there's an interesting smoky phenol in here that I'm guessing is from yeast issues, right? And so now when you say... Too. So it's uh, just Pilsner malt and a touch of Caramunic and I think uh, a little bit of, uh, of uh, I, uh, I can't remember what else is in it. Sorry. The special something that will now, yeah. And those are, uh, to my mind, those are the best saisons. So, well, thank you, sir. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us. And thank you so much. And uh, have a fun NHC. All right. We are now at our next booth here, the, the Maryland uh, portion of the club night, uh, or the Maryland portion of Pro Night, all the homebrew clubs, and we are talking with Gary Sharp of uh, Badass. All right, so Gary, introduce yourself to our audience and tell them uh, how long you've been brewing and uh, where are you brewing at? I'm Gary Sharp. I brew in Silver Spring. I've been doing it for about four years, and I like to do a lot of sours. You like to brew a lot of sours. All right. Now, is this your first NHC? This is my second. All right, and what do you like about NHC? Uh, just all the beer, all the camaraderie. You get to try a lot of stuff. Everyone's always super friendly. It's a great time. All right, and what makes your beer special? 
Uh, I do a lot of experimentation. I always try to do stuff that you know you don't find. Like I made a black goza, which I've never heard of that. So I yeah, just like to do something different. Try to a little bit offbeat, off the beaten path. All right. And so now, do you have any of your beer here? I do. I have a uh, black goza and uh, 80 shilling that I carved with honey. All right. Well, it sounds like since you're talking about the sour beers a lot, can I get a, a glass rinse and some of the black goza? All right. So now. While I'm, while I'm taking a taste, can you tell the audience uh, what you did to make this black goza black goza? Sure. So it's typical goza recipe, but I substituted in a pound of midnight wheat for the other wheat. And then it's um, fermented in a barrel for two or three months, just a little five-gallon barrel. Uh, spontaneously inoculated, just whatever's living in the barrel. And um, then aged another four or five months, and here it is. All right. And is there... Uh, any, any other ingredients other than just the barrel and the natural inoculation and the midnight, midnight wheat? Uh, well, of course, the uh, coriander and a little bit of salt uh, to make it a true goza. Well, I was going to say, because I'm getting a little bit of salt character, but not a lot. And I think, the, I think the, the coriander is kind of hidden because, wow, this thing packs a sour punch. I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm going to hand this to Danny just to watch his face. Yeah, all right. So since uh, this is a uh, radio thing and people can't see it, Denny's eyes basically went in two different directions and his mouth kind of turned in on itself with that sourness. What do you think, Denny? Uh, it's really sharp. Uh, kind of acetic, but it's really refreshing, man. That's like a 90-degree day kind of beer. Well, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Well, I was going to say also, I really appreciate where the salt level is because I've had some uh, gozes here uh, today where they basically taste like I dissolved a salt lick in my beer. Yeah, I don't like uh, too much salt or too much coriander, so I think that's why you find them pretty subdued. And I like a lot of sour, so that's what I do. I was going to say, yeah, you're, de you're definitely packing a sour punch in this, and that's pretty impressive. Blake, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to talk to us, and I hope you have a great NHC. Definitely. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Wendy Aronson. I'm a member of Burp, Brewers United for Real Potables. I've been brewing since the mid-'80s. Uh, member of the club since probably the early 90s. Um, we've got an awesome membership of the Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area. Um, and right now we've got nine outstanding examples of our um, beer, cider, and mead. Um, and a uh, couple pins. Uh, All right. We're known for our real ale. We have, yeah. All right. So now, is, this isn't your first NHC, right? Because I've, I've, I've seen you around. So, I, all right. How many NHCs have you been to, and what do you like about NHC? All right. Uh, I've probably been to around six or seven. And it's just meeting all these awesome people, kindred spirits. Folks that are willing to try everything and talk and be friendly and it's 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 just it's happy happiness. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good to have happy energy. Happy energy. Passionate. Passionate. We're all passionate about our beers and what we love and and I just it, you know it's just general all around friendliness. I've never met a group of happier drunks. That's a good point. Happy drunks are good drunks. All right. So, uh, Wendy, uh, what makes your beer special? 
Uh, let's see. What makes my beer special? I think, you know, we take a lot of care in our beer. We, we pay attention to detail, pay attention to our ingredients. Uh, everything, it, it, we put a lot of thought into the contribution of every ingredient that goes into our beer to make something that we love to drink and that we're not embarrassed to share with anyone. <laughs> All right, and so speaking of sharing, uh, you have one of your beers? Well, is one of them yours? All right, so we have a prickly pear wit, and can I uh, have a, a, a glass of the prickly pear? This is a prickly pear wit. Uh, we made a standard wit beer, and the real discussion between me and my partner, Bill Ridgely, was all right, do we put the prickly pear in with the primary or the secondary? He wanted primary, I wanted secondary, and I want out. As with most brewer couples, you have discussions. And I think Mary talked about pillow talk. <laughs> uh, I think that's where the discussion ended. <laughs> oh my, this is a family podcast, you know. Anyway, um, the prickly pears were dried, we rehydrated them uh, and boiled them down into a juice and put them into the secondary and that's what you're drinking. Well, I was going to say, I mean, so usually I think like with uh, prickly pear things you get a little more color, but this actually is very pale. And, but what's great is you're getting that fruit character, but the fruit character is still allowing all of the wit beer characters to shine through. And I think that exactly, exactly, Drew, that the, the idea, that's where the discussion was. I said, do you want a wit beer with prickly pear in the background, or do you want something that you're not sure what you've got? And I think that's why I went out with the, put it into the secondary. I wish the color was, the prickly pear, when we rehydrated it and made it into a juice, was just, it, it looked like this black currant. It was so dark red. Uh, when you put it in a pitcher, you can actually see the color, but in a glass, it's... Well, th these are rather narrow glasses, so they, they, they do tend to allow a lot more light through them. So, yeah, you're, you're going to bleach out a lot of your color. Well, again, great job on the beer, and thank you so much for talking thank to you. us. Thank you all. Um, have fun. <laughs> there you go. Have a great NHC. All right, and so uh, as we're walking away, I do have a, a glass of this uh, black currant uh, Lambic that is... If you didn't know it was beer, you'd think this was a, a, a fruit juice because it is dark purple with an impressively pink little little head attached to it. And yeah, I mean that's that big current uh, current nose along with some funky bacterial smells, a uh, fair amount of acid. Yeah, very. Uh, Dave was just saying barnyard, and I don't think I got picked up, but yeah, the, but not sweet at all, and not super fruity. It kind of gets a, a little bit of current acid. A lot of bacterial acid. There's a lot of funk to it. There is, a, as uh, one of my brewing mentors, NB Range, would say, it has a lot of hooey. Indeed. Yeah. That beer has the funk of James Brown. I would make a James Brown impression, but that would be a terribly white thing for me to do. All right. So, welcome to our podcast. Uh, if you could introduce yourself to our audience, uh, where you, uh, where you brew from, uh, how long you've been brewing. Okay, I'm Rob Farrell. Um, I'm from uh, Colesville, Maryland. A member of the Chesapeake Real Ale Brewing Society, Crabs. We've got our Waterman theme here, and we're serving uh, a bunch of uh, beers that are related to the water. I've been brewing since uh, 2001. All right, and is this your first NHC? 
This is my fourth NHC. And what do you like about NHC? I like seeing people that I don't get to see, you know, on that regular basis, even local people. I see them at NHC that I don't see. It's great to see a lot of people. It's great to try a lot of beers that I don't normally get to drink. And uh, it's great to go to seminars and learn a lot of cool stuff. I went to a seminar today that I thought was cold steeping, a topic that I knew very well, and it turned out not to be that at all. It was cold mashing, and it was very interesting. <laughs> very nifty. And uh, do you think you're going to try cold mashing because you attended this seminar? Yeah, I think I will. I think it's a good way to make uh, a very small beer with a lot of flavor and, and uh, color. and So it's, it was a good idea. Awesome. See, this is why you go to NHC, because you'll have happy accidents. As, uh, as I believe you mean homebrew con. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, the Wrath of Con con. Um, all right, and quick question. What makes your beer special? I brewed it. A very good answer. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. All right. Well, welcome to our podcast, sir. Uh, if you could uh, introduce yourself to the audience, uh, where you brew from, what your club is, and how long you've been brewing for. Absolutely. My name is Jake Grover. I'm representing the District of Columbia Homebrewers Club, and we're obviously from Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, our nation's capital. I've been brewing for about seven or eight years now. Seven or eight years? All right. And is this your first NHC? This is my first NHC. All right. So what do you think so far of NHC in this first day that you've been to one? It's, it's an interesting occasion. Uh, there's quite a mix of tonight, both craft brewers and home brewers, and it's really a mix of different styles, uh, different quality, and different uh, geographic regions represented. The important question is, what makes your beer special? Well, I would say that I benefit from the advice and support of many, many different people in our local community. People like Mike Tonsmeyer, uh, people like Nathan Zender of Right Proper, uh, people that are pushing the envelope like Scott Janish uh, in terms of hoppy beers, and just learning from our local community. And I feel as though the people that have been a part of DC Homebrewers for quite a while, it's a small niche, and we really have learned from each other and have learned uh, to push the boundaries of what we're trying to do over time. All right, great. And do you have one of your beers here today? I do. I brought a keg of a dry hopped Berliner Weiss, again inspired by our local community. The Right Proper Brewing Company did a collaboration with DC Home Brewers this past week and put out a dry hop Berliner Weiss. They were very, very generous in basically releasing their entire proprietary process to us. Not only the grain bill, but also what yeast they're using, and also, hey, by the way, why don't you come by and pick up some yeast from one of our fermenters, as well as their process, and then also what they're gonna dry hop. And they encouraged us to do a clone beer, and then to come to a local bar, Meridian Pint, and try them all side by side. And Nathan Zender, of course, and Mike came out and tried the beers and gave us feedback. And so I brought my version of that that I did two different ways. One was with Nathan's yeast from Right Proper, very, very tart, and a different method, which I've discussed with Mike, and he, he calls atomic sour, which is to acidify with the Omega Pure Lacto blend and then to pitch yeast on top of them, because of course a pure lacto pitch will not actually convert sugar to alcohol, it will only acidify. 
So on top of that, I pitch Sactois, White Labs 644. And so surprisingly, that, which you would expect to be much more acidic than a mixed culture from Ray Proper, was less acidic. And so it was very nice to try them side by side and then try them with our other friends who had also picked up the mixed culture from Ray Proper and brew their own. All right, we are now uh, standing here. We haven't moved very far. And <laughs> apparently we've run into a famous brew celebrity, Mr. Mike. Mike, introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, experimental brewing, fine people in internet land. So now this is your, your club? This is DC Homebrewers. We are DC's, DC's, DC'est homebrew club, um, metro accessible, weeknight meetings in most cases, really great group of people. Um, when I first started homebrewing, I joined an older, more established club that you may have bumped into down the line. Um, and there were some really fantastic brewers, some of the best, not just homebrewers, best brewers I've ever met in my entire life. But then I went to a DC homebrewers meeting and you could just feel that passion. This is my first beer, this is my second batch, I just moved the area. Um, and it was just such a different vibe and it was a vibe that I really enjoyed. It, it's, a, it's a very social club, it's a club that's really about um, meeting up, having some beers, talking shop a little bit, but we're not real big on competitions or on scoring everybody's beers with you know some made-up metric. It, it really is more of a homebrew hangout kind of thing. Awesome. Now, obviously, I think everybody knows what you do as a brewer because uh, you only did something stupid like write a book. I do a lot of stuff. I, I You know, I know, I'm known for sour beers. I'm, I'm here talking about sour beers on Saturday, but hoppy sour beers. And honestly, my two real passions are sour and hoppy. It's not on yet. I've got this new emerging New England IPA, and I, I don't think you guys have heard about that or mentioned it or even tried any of them. No, 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 no I'm not even aware of the style. All right, well, until your New England IPA comes on, do you have anything uh, available right now? No, nothing of mine. So Dude! I, I, brought, I brought three kegs of hoppy sour beer for... The talk. For the talk. Uh, they put me in a room for 900 people, and there are three different beers. And if you want some, please sit up front. It's at the same time as your talk, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, we can't get any beer because Mike and I are talking at the same time. Jerky schedule makers. Hey, you know what? You're in our talk. Good. I already got, I got a shout-out from uh, Mary, who does the speed brewing thing. Uh, I wasn't even in the talk, and I heard I got shouted out. So yeah, That's right, man, yeah. Well, what else can we do, you know? Uh, you, you have to, you know, self-promotion is a thing, and, and having a specialty, whether you're a home brewer or a commercial brewer, really goes a long way to raising your profile. If you do a little bit of everything, it's hard for people to know what you're about. And honestly, you know, probably less than half of why I brew is sour, but that is what people know me for. And you have a little bit of a focus, whether it's weird saisons or whether it's laid-back, dialed-in Pacific Northwest. That's something, you know, an image that people can associate with you and something they're going to be excited to try and that they're going to come into it in their mind and already be going, hey, this is going to be great, this is going to be fun, this is going to be something I'm going to enjoy. I think, in, in a way, homebrewers could learn something from commercial breweries that have that specialty and stick to something and both, you know, that marketing aspect, but also you're going to get better at something the more you do it. All right, well now, so given that you just said that, you know, everybody knows you for your, the niche of being the sour beers, is there a different thing that you wish people would know you for? No, I mean, so honestly, like, I just, I love home brewing, and most of what I brew is what I like to drink, and that's great because they can sort of change over time, and I don't have to be tied down to 
a brand and a marketing image and a whatever that a commercial brewery would be. Um, and I think to keep this hobby fresh, you've always got to be chasing something. And for me, it's like, you know, hey, I, I do a couple hoppy beers in a row and I'm really into it. And I get burnt out on drinking hoppy beers every night. I go off in some other direction. So honestly, sour beers, clearly terrific. Um, but I really also just have a passion for like brewing those sorts of beers that only home brewers can get away with. Um, using ingredients in absurd amounts that aren't available. You know, I, I just did a beer with gallberry honey. Try to get 500 pounds of gallberry honey for a commercial batch. You're not going to do it. But as a home brewer, I can pay nine bucks for a pound of honey. I mean, it's not, you know, it's a ripoff. But hey, it's a fun, weird beer. And for nine bucks in Washington, D.C., that's barely a, a pint of double IPA. So why not make a fun, weird beer with that nine dollars? Learn something. Maybe it'll be fantastic. Maybe it'll be weird and gross. I split a batch five ways, different honeys, got to try them next to each other. You know, that's the really fun thing about homebrewing is not have to, having to worry about what the TTB says, not having to worry about what the marketing department says, not having to worry about what the finance, you know, oversight, whatever says. Getting to brew exactly what you want, when you want it, with chanterelles, with clam broth or whatever that clam water, what is that stuff called? Clam juice. Clam juice. Oh, that sounds even worse. Why would they call it that? Why would they call it? It sounds like they're juicing the clams. You know, they could call it eau de clam or something. But, but that's sort of the point is, you know, you don't have to worry about anything except what beer you want. Um, and that's one of the fantastic things about this hobby. Or you can brew exactly what commercial brewery. And we, you know, that, that classic talk of if you want to be a great mead maker, a great winery, it's all about sourcing stuff. It's almost impossible to get the best grapes or the best honey. As a homebrewer, I can buy the same yeast, the same malt, the same hops, and make something that's just as good as the best commercial brewery, and I can do something else. And, and commercial breweries are so limited, I think we should worry less about what we can't do, what the advantage of the giant stainless steel conical or the, you know, all the, all the, the whiz-bang and the going to Yakima and picking out hops. Let's talk about what we can do, what we are able to do that commercial breweries can't. Adding wine and spirits directly to the beer. I mean, you, you've been doing that for a long time. I mean, that's rather than dealing with getting a tiny barrel or soaking chip, just add bourbon if you want bourbon flavor. Add a bottle of wine if you want a little bit of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc flavor. Don't try to get frozen New Zealand wine grapes. It's like for nine bucks, go to the local liquor store, get a nice citrusy grapefruit zesty bottle, and dump it in your beer. Who cares? It, it's illegal if you're a commercial brewery, but as a home brewer, Go for it, it's terrific. Make an ice beer, make, make, a, make a beer that is the craziest thing you can come up with, and then dump it when it sucks and brew something good. That's wonderful, man. I, I love that rant, Mike. <laughs> this has been Mike's Rants, as featured on Experimental Brewing. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, so Mike's just poured us a glass of uh, New England IPA. Uh, it is ha uh, hazy as hazy can be. And why don't you go ahead and describe to the audience what's special about the recipe and what you think about the whole New England thing and why it's the haze thing. Um, so I think part of the, part of the haze thing is it's, it's a little bit of a suggestion of what might haze might mean. Wow, look at that. That's got to have hops and suspension. This has got to be hoppy. But honestly, I really think there is something to the quality of the hop aroma that you get. Um, so really the idea with the New England IPA is sort of the classic West Coast thing was that you would make essentially a hoppy beer on the hot side, 
but then you'd ferment out, you get as much of the yeast as you could, you might filter it, you might find it, you might get as much of that yeast as you can, and then you're really just using the ethanol and the water as a solvent. The idea is to get the, ba the beer to taste like a bag of hops. You want that raw, real, green, fresh hop aroma. The idea with the New England IPA is you're adding hops, particularly for the dry hopping, while fermentation's still going on. And rather than using a super clean American ale yeast, you're using something that has some character. Um, so the three sort of classic ones are Conan, which is the Alchemist strain, uh, the Boddington strain 1318 from Y Yeast, or uh, 007 London Dry, or English Dry from uh, White Labs. Um, the idea there is that you're getting biotransformation. You are getting conversion of geraniol to citronellol. You're getting uh, nerol produced. You're getting uh, various other compounds that are being uh, changed. And really what you end up with is a fruitier, juicier hop aroma without the sort of um, green, grassy notes that you often get from West Coast IPAs. Higher chloride in the water, the, the classic term is a pillowy mouthfeel. It should be a softer, not that harsh, dry, sulfate bitterness. Um, this was only 35 IBUs of bitterness, flame out hops. Uh, a little bit cooler than you might otherwise, about 180, 185. I didn't want to get a huge amount of bitterness out of it. This is only about a 5.5% beer. Um, so this was uh, Citra Simcoe Mosaic, equal parts all throughout, and then a fermentation that mixed Conan, uh, the Giga Yeast version, Vermont IPA, with 1318. What do you think, Drew? Well, I finished my glass, so obviously I didn't think it sucked that much. Uh, but no, I, I, I totally get like that sort of big all-around hop character without the bad bite, right? You know, without, without it feeling aggressive. And I mean, it's funny to me to see it happen, but it's like this seems like a interesting take on what to do with hops uh, as opposed to how many can I jam into the kettle. And so, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that there is all that sort of fruit character to it. There is a roundness, a richness. Also, uh, unlike some of the New England IPAs that Denny had tried, like we're getting a haze, but it's not gravy. Yeah. And it doesn't seem... I've brewed some like that. I've brewed some that I had oat malt in there. It was almost like gray color that is just not... There, there, there is... Hazy is great, cloudy is okay, but then you get murky and muddy and you start... And I've had some local beers that are, you know, try that and you end up, you know, hop particulate and... Yeah, I'm not particularly offended by haze. I'm I'm offended when it uh, when it when it affects the mouthfeel. All right, all right. Thanks, Mike. Introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, where you uh, where you brew from? How long you been brewing? My name is Keith Lipford. Uh, we have a company here in Baltimore. We call it Keytech. We're the Keytech Brew Crew, but we brew our beer in Pennsylvania. It's in uh, South Central PA. Uh, it's actually in the Appalachians. What we use is spring water. Is that even on? Oh, okay. I should hold it like that. All right. What else can I tell you? Is this your first NHC? Second, but uh, first time we were serving our beer. All right. And uh, what makes your beer special? Brewed with love. Maybe a little extra capability. All right. And is there are these all your beer that you have? All right. Is there one in particular that we should taste? Depends on what you like. We got ales and lagers. We've got IPAs, which obviously is on the far side of you know hoppiness, all the way down to just malt multi. So our 
This is a, it's a traditional Bach, but we use honey. So this is going to be more malty. And then we have IPAs, which are obviously more hoppy. Well, since we, since we have a couple of hops already and, and homebrewers are known for the hoppies, yeah. let's go for the Bach. Okay. All right, and so uh, while I'm tasting, uh, can you go ahead and describe uh, what makes the, what's special about beer, the ingredients, et cetera? So it's a German-style, traditional Bach, but the secret ingredient on that is honey, but it's homegrown honey. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I get that big, rich, toasty, grainy, you know, brown bread-type malt character. I'm showing my New England roots by re referencing brown bread. And getting just a little bit of that honey character. Was it a particular variety of honey, or was it just whatever your bees could find? So uh, a little bit of uh, buckwheat, but usually just kind of... Uh, clover and we didn't have much buckwheat that year so we, they didn't get that much but well, cool. I mean it's it's very clean which is always nice and now why why key, the the whole tech part of the the brew name and the club so key tech actually develops complex medical devices but we're we're mechanical engineers electrical computer science industrial engineers and we just enjoy craft beer so we just decided to have some fun with it there you go. So in other words, Uber nerds going for the brew. That's awesome. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you guys executed a very clean, very nice lager. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, All right. So uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience, uh, where you brew from, what your club is, and how long have you been brewing? Uh, I've been brewing since about 1996. Uh, the club is in Central Maryland. We meet at people's houses, various places, and uh, migrate around. Uh, some of us are in southern Maryland, some in Laurel, some a little bit north of there. Well, who are you, how long have you been brewing, and what's the club's name? Okay, my name is John Crable. I've been brewing about 20 years, and the club is Malt, Maryland Ale and Lager Technicians. Awesome. Now, is this your first NHC? Yes, it is. All right, and after the end of this first day, as we're getting down towards it, what do you think of uh, your first day of NHC experience? I really like it. I like it a lot. Um, I've had a great opportunity to meet people that I've heard of and, and heard, listened to on podcasts and ask questions, and it's very been, been very, very educational and, and a lot of fun. Uh, and now you're on a podcast, so hey, look at that. What makes your beer special, your beer? I like malty English-style ales. Uh, I'm not a big fan of IPAs. I can drink them. I sometimes brew them, but um, I like beers that are a little unusual. I really started brewing so that I could brew beers I couldn't buy. So I would brew milds and things like that that you just can't find in a store. And now, do you have one of your beers on tap right now? The American Brown Ale is mine. All right, which which one of the the Russian between the Russian Imperial Stout and the Brown Eyed Girl American Brown, which one says you the best? I think the American Brown Ale says me best. The Russian is is really strong and it's wonderful beer, but the Brown Eyed Girl is one I've been brewing for years, and a lot of my friends really like it. All right, let's get a sample of the Brown Eyed Girl if we can. Uh, which of course, Brown Eyed Girl is also my mom's nickname because. I know she's loved she's that a song. Van Morrison fan. She is a Van Morrison fan. So, all right. Uh, so while I take a taste of the beer, uh, why don't you go ahead and describe uh, your recipe or what makes the beer special in your mind? Okay, it was it, the Brown Eyed Girl was inspired by an IPA that I liked in a local brew pub. So I used the same hops and um, some Victory malt, and I love Carafa malt. Um, it's a nice malty beer, but it's also got a hop presence. Uh, not terribly bitter, but it, it's a good flavor. Well, I was going to say, you've got a little bit of caramel, but not a lot. You've got definite brown malt notes and some of the, uh, some of those kind of toffee things that you would get out of Carafa. 
Uh, and yeah, you're right. Not not a lot of hop character to it. Uh, how how big is the beer? Uh, it's about 50, 54. So in other words, you know, kind of straight up American craft brew sessional beer. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty moderate American brown ale. Now you said that you've been brewing this for a while because your friends really like it. How long have you been brewing this? Uh, about as long as I've been in the club, about seven or eight years. See, that's good long history, and that's a, that's a Denny like history to to a beer where. Yeah, no, he keeps just doing the same beer again and again and again because he's discovered he likes it. John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And Thanks very much. Well, and I hope you have a great NHC. It's great. It's, I'm having a great time. Thanks a lot. Welcome to the podcast, sir. If you could, please, for our audience, uh, give your name, the club, where you brew from, and how long you've been brewing. Uh, my name is Stewie. Um, I'm the president of uh, Brutherville Labs Brew Club. Uh, we're located in Lutherville, Maryland, and I've been brewing for about 20 years. There's a lot of 20-year brewers here, I'm noticing, which is kind of awesome. All right, uh, is this your first NHC? No, this is my second. All right, and what do you like about NHC? What's not to like about NHC, really? Um, probably the best is is club night. You know, when you get to hang out with your fellow home brewers, that's, that's the best part of it. Yeah, great, yeah, and, and you guys actually get to enjoy club night tomorrow night as opposed to working it because all the with all the maryland clubs are pouring tonight during pro night yep. all right um what makes your beer special so this year we did something a little different we started with a base recipe of a pale malt and then each of our brewers took it in a different direction so some guys added a different yeast some guys added different hops some guys changed the malt bill just a little bit and so we have kind of a, an array starting from the base beer all the way to almost a porter, but with the base recipe still underneath it all. Very cool. And is one of the beers that's pouring here one of yours? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Which one is it? Uh, it's number eight. So that's, that has the uh, chocolate malt, the crystal, and again, with that, that base recipe. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and we get some uh, of your, your beer into the mix and then uh, do the tasting. All right, so while I'm tasting the beer, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and describe to the audience what's different about your beer as opposed to the other ones so that they get a sense of what we're talking about here. Sure. Um, so this beer didn't come out that great, but it's important because you get an idea of how certain hops, like the Galaxy Hop we use in the base recipe, clash with the darker malts of the chocolate, um, and it's... It's really amazing. You know, that's, that's why we did this experiment, because you don't usually set off to brew something like this, but it's really important that you get to taste how that clash happens so that when you're, you're putting together your own recipe, now you know what it tastes like, and you'll stay away from that, that kind of uh, grassy, lemony-type hop with those darker chocolate malts. Well, I was going to say, the first thing I noticed is, like, yeah, I get, I get that nice chocolate thing going on that you're getting from your dark malts, and then, yeah, suddenly you get all that tropical fruit, kind of jammy, weird. I always think the galaxy is being almost so fruity it tastes almost rotten. And, yeah, it's it gives a real strong, like, swerve to the beer that, they, that you're kind of like, eh? Hey. And, the, and the opposite from going the dark malt, uh, one of our brewers added some wheat and some Saison yeast. And that works really, really well with those galaxy hops. See, now that's very cool. I like, and... Now, do you guys do this sort of experiment all the time, or was this just for this event? Uh, it was just for this event. However, we do smaller experiments here and there. Um, you know, the, the basis of our group is, is Brutherill Labs, so we really talk about a lot of the science. 
I have a molecular biology background, so I can, I can get really, really geeky when it comes to yeast and what's going on in your mash. Um, sometimes a little too much, but, um, but you know, we, we try to, to really uh, pull some of the science out of brewing and talk about it. Hey, hey, that sounds familiar to me. A man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and because of course we're doing all of our experiments as well yeah. and putting them out there. So, hey, I wanted to say uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful NHC. Uh, so we are back at DCS because uh, Jake now has his Belinda Vice on, on tap. Uh, and it is uh, pouring it. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Belinda Vice. Uh, you want to come this way? And, uh... All right. So while I taste the beer, sure. uh, can you go ahead and, and describe to the audience uh, what's different about the beer or, or how exactly you brewed this one? Sure. So the, the innovation on this beer is it's a Berliner Weiss that is dry hop, but the key is to not actually add hops to the kettle because, of course, lactobacillus doesn't perform well in the presence of bitterness. And so you, it's really easy beer to make. It takes about an hour and a half less than most beers that I would make in that you only have to boil it for 10 minutes. You can boil it not at all if you want. And then you only have to cool it to about 120 degrees, and then you add the lactobacillus and let it do its work. That will eat through the yeast in a few days, and then on the back end, once it's sufficiently down to terminal gravity, you can dry hop on the back end. So that adds a little bit of bitterness and a lot of flavor. So you get the fruitiness, but you also get the tartness. And so it's like a, almost like a dry hopped but tart session pale ale. Well, I'm, I'm looking at it, and you've got like, this incredibly deeply scary white haze beer, which is not a bad thing. I'm just saying it's like it is a solid looking beer with a little bit of hop flakes floating around it, but it almost comes off tasting like an Orgina, you know, like those Italian sodas where you have that citrus character, you have a little bit of that sourness, but yeah, you also have a nice bitterness. An Orgina comes from the orange peel, here it's coming from the hops. So part of that deliberate, part of that is deliberate, part of it is not. Uh, the, the orange flavor is very deliberate in the choice of hops, which is Mandarina Bavaria and Amarillo. And so the, both of those hops, particularly the Bavaria, really has an orange flavor. The Amarillo has more of a citrusy grapefruit. But on the cloudiness, that's mostly because I turned this beer around in 10 days. So anyone tells you you can't brew a sour beer in 10 days, you come and tell them to talk to me because I got this yeast about two weeks ago, knew that I needed to turn it around for this convention, brewed it two weekends ago, let it ferment for a week, dry hopped it, and then kegged it about three days ago. And so that's a little bit of why we have the, the foam problem, but also the cloudiness. You give that another week, and it would be perfectly carbonated and also much clearer. Well, but to me, I think the other thing is, I mean, as it is right now, as a thing that you're pouring, uh, pouring as a quick turnaround, this is really tasty. And I really actually like it because it, it's expressing some really wonderful fresh characters. And it's, yeah, it's not overly sour. It's not like a, a punch to the face. But, yeah, you've got, you've got a nice little uh, quick beer here. Excellent. I, all credit goes to Ray Proper Brewing Company in Shaw of Washington, D.C. They were so generous in doing a collaboration beer with us. Not only that, but they basically gave us their process. They said, here's the grain bill. Come and pick up the yeast if you want. Here's what we do, and here's how we dry hop it. 
And the fact that I even approach what they're doing is a testament to what they're doing over there, which are some really killer Berliner devices. Great. Well, hey, Jake, thank you so much for uh, making sure that we got the beer. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know about you guys, but I learned some things that I totally forgot about that night. Apparently, beer doesn't help you remember uh, all the discussions that you've had. But all I can tell you is that was a really, really great time that we had walking down that little line of uh, Maryland homebrew clubs and talking to everybody. Everybody was so enthusiastic, and they were up. They were bringing their A game, and they were just having a lot of fun. Uh, And really, really... If you've ever debated about going to HomebrewCon in the past, you really should just give the, give it a try, if for no other reason than to see uh, Club Night, see the social settings, and see just exactly how crazy, nutty, wonderful people are about this hobby. <laughs> so really, uh, really highly recommended, and I hope that you guys enjoyed that little, that little trip down the uh, drunken homebrew lane. Uh, because I can tell you right now, we had a lot of fun uh, recording it. Yeah, really. And it, it was, it's always so cool to see uh, people's creativity and the different ideas they have uh, about things. So uh, I, guess it's, I guess it's time to wrap up this episode. So thanks a lot for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. We're on places probably I haven't even figured out yet, believe it or not. Uh, I'm pretty much on every internet forum out there that discusses beer, so you can probably find me there. If you ever want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or uh, give us some ideas for a new charity to donate to, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to email each of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he is Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.